you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. In our series of supremacy of Christ in all things, uh, as we go into chapter 3, if you're here last week, we're going, we're rewinding a little bit uh, chronologically to look at the family specifically. And uh, this is huge. This is huge. And it's wow. Uh, talking about the family and roles in husbands and wives, and that whole, I, I just can't tell you how crazy it is uh, as a pastor, uh, as a believer, to open the Bible and to try to teach on this today as opposed to one year ago, as opposed to three years ago, as opposed to five or ten years ago. Uh, where do we start? Where do we start? What, what is the role of a husband and wife. I mean, we're living in a society that has, in the last year, literally has redefined marriage. Redefined marriage. For thousands of years, marriage is defined. And, and, and believers, for that matter, have been woefully ill-equipped to articulate why that matters. And all we've been able to say is, you know, whatever. Whatever they want to do is fine for them. That's not what I choose to do. I'm not going to do... And we don't even know how to argue or defend or should we defend or what's the way to love our neighbor and how do we do that and what. And we don't know how. So we got a group of people that have gone way overboard and are, are just jerks, to be frank, uh, in the name of Jesus and how they defend traditional roles and whatever. And then we have others that many of us that, that are, are, are just silent on it. We just keep our mouths shut. We just don't say anything. And then so we try to say things. We don't really know what, know what to say. We, we are just struggling how to articulate and how to defend and how to explain. And so we have some simple verses that should be so easy for us to look at this morning, but yet because of the way that the world has been and our culture has changed, it is, I, I can't tell you how difficult it is for me to even begin to talk about this because I don't even know where to start. How do we even begin to talk about husbands and what? What is a husband? What is a wife? Just listen to some recent... Um, very early statistical samplings of the next generation. You've got the boomers, you've got the um, Generation X, the millennials, or Y generation, and now what they're calling temporarily the Generation Z. I like to call them the selfie generation, but Generation Z. And one of the things that is distinct about this generation, and this is just... And, and, Generation Z, I can't remember exactly the dates, but those that are freshmen, arguably sophomores in college, would be arguably in this generation. Certainly those graduating freshmen, that's probably somewhere, give or take a couple years, is the front end of this. And then the, the earlier, the youngest ones have not even born. So those of you that um, are with child, you have a Generation Z and you're um, you know, with you right now. So um, that will be coming in the world here shortly. Uh, and so what are distinctives of this? Well, one of the things that's true about this generation, I'm not going to go into a lot of it, but just one of the things, is they are growing up with a worldview that, by the way, they did not create. They have just, it's, they've known nothing different than. This is a worldview that was created by previous couple generations. But, but whatever you do, this is a parenting point, whatever you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. Whatever you do in moderation, good or bad, your kids will, good or bad, do in excess. And you're seeing that as these worldviews and these paradigms are, are blossoming and we're starting to see really what's going on. 
And, and the term, for some of you, this is a brand new term, is gender fluidity. This Generation Z, they don't see boy, girl. They don't see gay, lesbian. They don't see labels. They see gender fluidity. It's interesting, the conversation has gone away from, now people aren't even debating whether you're born one way or born another way. It doesn't really matter. You can be whatever you choose to be and whatever you want to be, and your personhood is fluid for whatever you want. And so how do you figure out what you are? Well, just, it doesn't really matter. Just experience and go out there and see. And you can find it out. The the most prominent poster child for this right now would be Miley Cyrus. She's, she's the, big, the biggest one uh, to talk about in her experience. She says, me and my, my partner or whatever, we don't choose to think in labels of boy, girl, or man, woman, and husband, wife, and those things. We don't, we don't, we don't wear those labels, gay, straight. That's not, doesn't matter. We just do whatever, whatever we feel like is what, who we are. That's our identity is fluid. And so when I'm starting to come back to say, okay, well, husband's supposed to be this way, wives, you're supposed to be this way, kids, you're supposed to be this way, fathers, you're supposed to be this way, how am I supposed to do that when we don't even have terms that work anymore? Now, now to show you how we've gotten to this point, I want you to understand, you, you need to understand the cultural paradigm of today, today's cultural worldview paradigm that many of you operate under and you don't even realize it. The cultural paradigm of the day has, has two, there's maybe lots of ways to develop this, but just to simplify it as best I can, two, two primary thoughts. The first one is, I am the, should say the, I am the ultimate authority and determiner of what is right, i.e. true, and what is best for me. I am the ultimate determiner, authority, of what is right and what is true for me. Now, the thought and the implications of that regarding gender roles, sexuality, those things might repulse you. But most of us operate under that even when we think about spirituality and church. What's true and what's not true? We don't go back to the Word of God to figure out what's true what's not true. We don't try to make sure that our belief systems are undergirded with a biblical foundational worldview. We just hodgepodge together a bunch of random ideas and thoughts and experiences of our perception of reality because my perception of reality is ultimate and I am the ultimate authority and determiner of truth and nobody can tell me what's true for me. What you believe is what you believe. What I believe is what I believe and I determine truth for myself. And so for us, that might be something we debate regarding spirituality. But if you follow the paradigm, eventually you get to the point where even gender roles are up for grabs and who you are It's fluid because you're the determiner of truth. The second part of that is my ultimate aim is my satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness. So in other words, if if I am the ultimate authority and determiner of what's true for me, and my chief aim and objective is my own happiness, my own peace, my own joy, my own whatever, then I am free and sovereign to do whatever I want, to do whatever I need to do to be able to find satisfaction and peace and joy and happiness and fulfillment in my life. And if switching teams back and forth as many times as I need to is part of that, if I switching spouses is, is what I need to do, if switching whatever, religions, you name it, is what I need to do to determine to find that I, I am free autonomous being sovereign 
over myself and I will figure out what I need to do, when I need to do it. As long as I am seeking happiness, you should be applauding and celebrating my life. What do we do with that? <laughs> what do we do with that? So when we read Colossians, and let's just do it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through 21. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Four categories. Husbands, wives, wives, husbands, uh, children, fathers. Four, four groups that are referenced there. And to understand that, uh, we have to ask a Another question to make sure we're even on the right paradigm. So before you can consider these words on marriage, we've got to ask a couple foundational questions. So before we can think about the implications of Christ being supreme over my marriage, like talked last week about our work, uh, but over my marriage and over all of creation, before we can consider that, we need to think about a couple things. So let's just to review Colossians the, the book of Colossians, just to, to build a paradigm maybe off this book, and we could go back to Genesis to do this, and we will a little bit, but um, here's some review things. Number one, is Jesus supreme in my life? If Jesus is supreme in my life, over half of marriages, understand this, are doomed from the start because they have the wrong foundation. They have the wrong foundation. Again, if, if I am my sole determiner of authority and truth and my happiness is the chief aim of my life, then we're, we're building on the premise of, of two self-seeking people trying to find their own fulfillment and happiness by pursuing solely their own fulfillment and happiness in a relationship with another person who's, again, who's out for their own fulfillment and happiness. So, uh, you think about the normal reasons for marriage, typical reasons why people get married. Sometimes it's because of pregnancy. Sometimes it's because of a rebound. Sometimes it's because of escape, trying to, trying to escape from something, to get some, somebody to help them, provide for them, whatever, find a new way out, whatever. Uh, sometimes people get married for loneliness. Often people get married solely because of physical appearances. Uh, social pressure. Well, that's the right thing to do. And everybody gets married. And so I, thought, I guess I should get married because that's the normal. So social pressure. Some people get married out of guilt. Well, we've made some mistakes and whatever. So we, we should get. Some people get married out of pity. You know, well, what are they going to do without me? I guess I, guess I better, better, you know, better marry them. They, they'll, they'll be tough if they don't. I, they need me. And uh, we joke, but that's really true sometimes. We get married because it's a rescue mentality. Well, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to help them. I'm going to. And, and that. that how does that go, trying to change your spouse? Yeah, good luck. Um, some get married because of romance. This is probably one of the predominant views one way or another, romance. And a Greco-Roman view of romance. I met them and love at first sight, and sparks went off, and, and I was just so excited. And I just knew that they were the one. We were destined to be together. It was amazing. I just knew, and music played, and birds flew, and it was awesome. There was, there was giant jellyfish swimming around. It was incredible. You know, it, it, 
the reality is, is that's adrenaline and infatuation are usually the, the catalysts behind that. And so um, adrenaline's generally not a good reason to get married. And it's, you're going to have a hard time maintaining that uh, in a marriage. It's just not going to be there forever. Um, infatuation, not a good foundation. And so are those good foundational? Well, again, all of those trace back to me trying to find my joy, my happiness, and my fulfillment, which goes back to the foundational questions. What's the main purpose for marriage? What's the, why do we do this? What's the whole, well, first of all, is Jesus your Lord? Is he your king? Because Colossians 1 says that he has preeminence in all things. If we look at Colossians 1.15, here's what it says. 15 through 23. We could just read all of Colossians, but um, let me just sample for you. That's not the verse. Oh, yeah. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Talking about Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Ergo, he created man, Adam, woman, Eve, created them with specific purposes and order and created her out of him. And he set together systems and roles and gender definitions and the foundation of marriage in the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 2. All things, including marriage and man and women, with specific gender identities, were created by him and for him and through him. It goes on to say, before him, uh, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So he's eternal. He is sovereign and sustainer. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him, that in everything he might be preeminent or first place or supreme that he would be supreme that he would be first place that he would be the point of everything comes back to jesus for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross and so Clearly, the first principle we get from Colossians, the foundation as we build a biblical grid, is that Christ is supreme. And so the first thing I need to ask you is before we even talk about husbands and wives and who does what and how the culture's changed and do we need to look at those roles different and all of that stuff. First of all, who's your foundation? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Because if you answer that question, yes, that changes everything. And if you answer that question, no, I'm still sovereign. Okay, well then, you're working off a different paradigm. Okay, that's fine, but just understand you're going to end up somewhere else. You can't try to merge the two together. It doesn't work. And so first and foremost, are you, is Jesus supreme? The second thing is, are you walking in a manner consistent with testifying to Christ? Are you walking in a manner worthy of him? That's where we get into Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. So just moving through the book with the flow of thought. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it, next, that you are not taken captive, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So not only 
Are you, is Christ supreme in your life? Are you walking worthy of him? Are you giving greater weight to the philosophy, philosophies of the world or of Jesus? What shapes your worldview? The world or Jesus? The world is operating on a completely different paradigm. They are operating on a natural, humanistic, atheistic, evolutionary paradigm. They believe that the world was not created by a God who has authority over it. They believe that all things have evolved and they've evolved from nothing. And therefore, there is no supreme ruler over all of creation. Recently, two weeks ago, I heard... um, there was a, that one of the prominent newspapers in a or scientific journal, newspaper writing about the scientific journal, was talking about, I think I referenced this a couple weeks ago, about how they're, they're now looking at, in fact, two recent articles uh, I've come across. Atheists, naturalistic, humanistic people are, are trying to figure out answers for everything that we do, don't do, whatever, in naturalistic evolutionary thinking. And so a couple things that they've observed. One is that you, just like your dog, just like your cat, just like whatever pet or animal, wild or domesticated, you are animalistic. And you do what you do because of the chemical wake up, uh, makeup and wiring of your brain. And so, quite honestly, you are not a sovereign creature at all. You are a creature defined by your chemical makeup and if we could, and we, they think they determine that we will soon, can determine and study the um, brain function and the firing all the synopsis in your brain and all the stuff going on there, we could actually determine precisely what you will and will not do and how you will act and respond and what you... So what that means is basically you are not a free person, free to do whatever you want, and choose whatever you want. You, quite frankly, you do whatever is animalistic and whatever you have evolved into doing. And so your actions really, you can't really be held responsible for your actions. That was before what happened in Orlando. And so it, understanding an, a, an authentically sincere, objective atheist would have to look at Orlando, and based upon that reality, they would look at that, and they would have to back away and say, that person just did, they didn't have a choice to do what they did. That's just the fruit of the makeup of who they are biologically and chemically, and it's just part of the laws of evolution in a naturalistic society and world where, you know, um, stuff's working out, and the survival of the fittest, and stuff happens. It's all part of the cycle of life. They got no answers. In fact, a recent article I heard last week is talking about babies, and they said that babies have evolved with a, um, a defense mechanism called cuteness. And that they're actually, that they're tricking you. And they have evolved to be cute because the cuteness tricks you into wanting to take care of them and love them and, affer- and, and, to, and nurture them, whatever. And if they weren't cute, then you, would, you wouldn't take care of them. And so they've actually, evolution is the reason why babies are cute is because they've evolved to be cute so that you will have this this um, nurturing affection for them and want to take care of them but they're like little mean animals that really want to eat you and kill you or whatever and but they're cute because that's the way they've evolved so that you'll you'll take care of them and we listen and we're just like 
that's stupid. That is really stupid. And yet people say it has, it's hard to believe there's a God. Okay, sure. Yeah, okay. But yet they're going to believe this stuff because they're, they're trying to figure it all out without a biblical understanding of reality. And so that's the philosophy, philosophy of the world. And we need to understand that these are the conversations that are happening. They have no way of explaining why they love their child that is in utero that has no personality. And you have atheists that would say that a child up to the age of three can be terminated because they don't really have a sense of personhood or an ability to plan to the future and to think and to plan to but they can't defend themselves. They can't whatever. So it really, if they, if they have certain biological, physical needs and they're really not going to help society, we should be able to terminate that child knowing that they really can't help and contribute and whatever. And so why would we grieve that? That's just, they don't, they're not, they don't have a sense of personhood. That's not connected with their humanity. Their body's a machine. Personhood comes later when they get to a certain age. Wow. That's the stuff that's out there. And it's not that extreme. You just don't hear about it. The guy that said that we shouldn't be held accountable for our actions because we don't have a free will, he went on to say that even though he believes that to be true scientifically, because that's what he's discovered in a lab, void of God, that's not a healthy way for society to live. And it would be better if society, we continue to tell people that they need to make good choices because that's a healthier way for society to function. So he wants to have his cake and eat it too. I hope I'm not losing you in the weeds here, but I, you need to understand this foundation. So is Christ supreme in your life? Number one, a- am I walking in a manner worthy? And what's shaping my worldview? Is it Jesus or is it the world, the philosophies of the world? What does my life represent is the last thought in jumping into this marriage thing. What does my life represent? Because he says in verse 17, and this launches us off to look at marriage and family and then look at the workplace, which is what we talked about last week, and then look at how this fleshes out in all of our lives. It all springboards off of verse 17. Whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, let me go even back to 16. Uh, He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, the stuff you say or the stuff you do, do all of that in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So what that means is that our lives are labeled, our branding of lots of different things. You are like a NASCAR vehicle, car, with lots of stickers on you that represents what you believe and what you think and, what you, and whether you like it or not, whether you recognize it or not, you reflect, you elevate, you point to certain things and branding that testifies to your life. When people look at you, you represent things. You might represent worldly success. You might represent athletic success. You might represent Nike or Apple or a band or a career or a hobby or um, a level of society and prominence. You might represent, there's a lot of different things you might represent, but you represent things. And what he's saying is let's have our lives. What if our families and our work and the way we live missionally, which will be next week, 
What if our whole lives were leveraged in such a way that the branding, that the name, that the, that the title that is lifted up in our lives is Christ and that he is supreme in everything? And so if Christ is going to be supreme in everything, what does that mean for our marriage? Well, that means there's some huge implications there. God's ideal for marriage, what, what, what is that? Harmony, unity, peace are all possible in a marriage, and they all testify to the redemptive power of Christ that fuels a Christ-centered marriage. But the, the reality of our marriages is that more important than your marriage, more important than your fulfillment, more important than your happiness, more important than you whether you like your spouse right now or don't like your spouse right now, more important than the most important thing about your marriage is Christ and Him being supreme. That's it. It's the most important thing about your life. You say, well, that's not why I got married. It doesn't matter why you got married. It's just this is the purpose behind marriage. Marriage, as we find in Colossians, I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians just gives us some quick headings for this is the moms or wives, husbands, fathers, children, just gives us some quick headings. Here's some highlights of how that looks in your family. And we're going to look at those and the unique implications of this passage. But again, to have a broader picture of what's the purpose of this, first and foremost, marriage is meant to exemplify Christ and the church. Christ and the church. So what does that mean? Well, that means uh, there's some big implications to that. What that means is that husbands, your Ephesians 5 teaches wives, let's look at wives first, give a picture of the church to the world. Wives and the way you wife give, gives a picture of Christ, of the church, to the world. The way the church is supposed to function is, is seen in wives and how you conduct yourselves in your marriage. Wives give a picture of church of the church to the world. And husbands, you give a picture of Christ to the world. Husbands give a picture of Christ to the world. Our marriages are to be a walking testimony of Christ and the church to the world. Now let me pause for one second and just say, I know that in this room, I know many of your stories. I don't know everybody's stories. I know there's a lot of stories I don't know. But I know there's a lot of water under the bridge. I know that you have all, we're all coming from a lot of different backgrounds. And there, there's wounds and there's hurts. There's pain. There's a, a, a lot of us that uh, maybe this, this thinking and this stuff, nobody explained this stuff. You had no idea what you were going. You have made the best decisions that you can make with the information that you had in the moment and good or bad, whatever's happened in your past, the, what I'm talking about here, I am not laying out there to condemn, to put some uh, pressure and some conviction and to hurt and to wound and to make you feel like a dirty, rotten sinner because you aren't perfect. That's not the point of this, okay? That's not the point, and that is not my heart. Now, if God surfaces some things in your heart, in your life, that you need to go back and fix and do and fight for, praise God. But do it under grace and do it knowing that you are loved and you are cherished and you aren't perfect, but you have a perfect father. 
And he'll help you and he'll able, enable you to do everything you can in your power to honor him. But your power, you can't make somebody do stuff that they don't want to do, right? And so that's another conversation. I'd love to talk to you more about that. I can't deal with that completely right now. But nonetheless, I want to go back to the foundation of what the purpose of marriage is. And so here's the thing about marriage. And should we stick in a marriage? What happens if, you know, if things aren't working out? Or what do we do? Well, I, well quite frankly, if we're just going to be raw, honest, and brutal about the truth of the Word of God, husbands, when Christ gives up on His church, when Jesus looks at His bride and finally says, enough is enough, you have prostituted yourself too many times. You have left me and run after lovers too many times. You have got into idolatry too many times, and I am done with you. When Christ says that to his church, husbands, you're free to walk away. You are free to walk away. And wives, when the church... When the church looks to a father who forgives us again and again and again, to a savior who has died for us and laid his life down for us and has cultivating in us and is conforming us to his image, when Jesus finally rejects us and says enough is enough, when he finally walks away from us, then you're free to walk away from your marriage. You're free. But until that happens, and it's not going to happen, then is to the degree that you have power in energy in your life, with God's sustaining grace, I would challenge you, I would encourage you to fight, fight, fight until your dying breath. And you say, I am not going to live the next 15 years, 40 years, whatever many years, miserable trying to fight for somebody. If somebody doesn't love me or whatever, I, fine, don't. But I'm just, I'm telling you that eternity is longer than our temporal life. And honestly, the message of the Bible is it's worth fighting for the picture that is eternal than it is for the satisfaction and fulfillment that is temporary. And until we come to the point where we find our satisfaction and our contentment and our hope and our peace in Christ alone, we're all going to have problems in our marriages. But if Christ would be the center, then God can heal any marriage. And the gospel becomes the foundation. Now that is the biblical. As best that I can be faithful to what I understand the word of God teaching. This is, that's the foundation we operate out of. It's tough. It is hard. It is difficult. But it humbles us. And it causes us to repent. It causes us to confess our need for Christ. To do the miraculous. For him to sometimes raise Lazarus from the dead. For him sometimes to take Isaac and to provide another sacrifice because it seems like we have to sacrifice Isaac. It seems like that's what he's asking us to do. Put our dreams and aspirations on the table and say, God, if you want to resurrect this, you alone can do that, but I'm just going to have to wait on you. And, whatever, and you, I don't know if you know this, but did you know marriage is not eternal? I mean, you get to heaven, there's not giving and receiving. You know, Jesus dealt with that in a conversation with a woman who had several husbands. And which one is she going to be married to in heaven? And he said, none of them. And for some people, that's a hard one. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I like my spouse. I mean, I would like to keep them for eternity. You know, the shadows and the earthly fulfillments we have in this lifetime, man, they are 
they can be wonderful sometimes. God has, wow, He has redeemed some things in a fallen world that we can have some wonderful joys in this temporal life. But I want you to understand that they are shadows as to the joys and the, the uh, satisfaction and the fulfillment that we will all experience in heaven is going to so overshadow. He is going to raise the key of praise and of joy and fulfillment and enjoyment and satisfaction and I mean to a level that we will not be able to comprehend and we will look back to the greatest moments on this earth and we will say that they paled in comparison to the joy we will one day experience in heaven. It will be so far beyond what we can comprehend. We're not going to be looking back to this temporal world going, I kind of wish that I could keep some of that stuff up here. I don't know exactly what it all is going to look like, but I'm just telling you, it's better than this world. And so by faith, we, to our marriages have an ultimate end. And the ultimate end is to, to communicate the gospel and an eternal truth that Christ has faithfully redeemed his church and is conforming her into his image and is committed to her with a covenant love that will never be broken. And one day he is going to come back for that bride and they're going to, we're all going to be part of that wedding feast in heaven and it's going to be unbelievable. And so our marriages are temporal pictures of an internal reality. With that being understood, he says a few points that are important for us to think is how do we represent, how do our marriages, how do our families represent Christ? And here's, here's the simple principles. When Jesus is supreme in our families, and here's what we see. Number one, wives are voluntarily submitting to their husbands. Now, I, to use the S word, submission, without all of the context of everything I just talked about, you know, is, to, is a quick way to get hurt, you know, for me. I mean, I could get attacked and beaten and chased down and, you know, you chauvinistic, bigoted pig, you, uh, you know. But, but in the context of everything we said, here's what he says here. Wives, be subject, voluntarily submissive to your husbands, get this, as is fitting in the Lord. That's what makes it possible. If we didn't have the comma, as is fitting in the Lord, okay, this wouldn't be possible. I understand. I know, I know it would be very difficult for Janet. Um, and I imagine it would be difficult for uh, the rest of the wives in the room. It would be very difficult for you to submit to your husband. But it shouldn't be so hard to submit to Jesus. And know that he's your advocate. And know that he's the perfect father. And he's the perfect husband. And he's the perfect. And so you're not, your husband, you can nicely superficially say to them, yes, I'm submitting to you, but you know in your heart of hearts that you're not submitting to them, you're submitting to Christ. And you're submitting to them by faith because you're submitting to Christ. And so you're putting up with a lot of stuff at times because you're trusting and trusting yourself to Christ, not to your spouse. Okay, and so the, the temporal submission in earthly relationships is possible because of an eternal submission to Christ who's supreme in your life. And when Christ is supreme and Lord in your life, he's preeminent in your life. And I can temporally submit to my spouse. Now, that's a whole nother ball of wax. And I don't have time to get all. What do, what do we submit when they're calling us to do something evil? We do we submit when they're calling us to do something illegal? Do we submit to that? No. When, they submit, when they're trying to physically hurt and harm and I'm in danger, whatever, 
that, no, there's, there's circumstances that God has given us other principles to help us navigate that. But ultimately, you don't submit because your spouse is perfect. You don't submit because your spouse is easy to, to submit to. Or um, you don't submit because your spouse is smarter than you. We all know that that's not true of any of us in here, right? Husbands, you know, our wives are smart. They, they got to figure it out. Wives are voluntarily submitting to their husbands. Second, husbands are loving their wives as servant leaders. Servant leader. Servant leader is an important phrase. It's important to qualify leadership with the word servant. Because when Jesus came and he served his bride, the church, he didn't show up and get the whip and bring down his authority and the sword from his mouth and his power and say, okay, this is the way it's going to be. I'm the king and I'm in my house. And this is the way things are going to run. No, he washed her feet. He served her. He cared for her. He ultimately laid down his life to suffer and die for his bride. And that is the pattern that we're given for Christ. And so most husbands would have enough testosterone and backbone and whatever to say, yeah, I'll take a bullet for my wife and my family. Absolutely, I would die for my wife. Will you wash the dishes? Will you take out the trash? Will you stop playing golf every week for four hours? Will you, start, will you start looking for ways to serve and to help and to minister to your spouse and your family? That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the basin and the towel and the cross, but the basin and the towel, serving, washing feet, taking care of, helping, nurturing, being all in. And that's what fatherhood is about. That's what being a husband, a godly husband is about. So we're serving our spouse. We're loving them. We're, we're, we're trying to conform them to the image of Christ. We're trying to, Ephesians 5, for more context on this, we're washing them with the word. We're helping them grow. We're nurturing. We're loving. We're caring. And, and so we're servant leading our spouses. And that's the goal of what God is calling us to do as husbands. Wives voluntarily submitting their husbands. Husbands loving their wives as servant leaders. I, there's not a lot of wives, I think, that aren't willing to yield themselves voluntarily to a husband who unconditionally loves them. And what happens is we have wives that have not submitted to their husband's leadership and have been hypercritical and nagged and been mean and been vindictive and have been like a drippy faucet on a rainy day. Um, that's what Proverbs calls them, nagging wife. Uh, and the Proverbs goes on to say, it'd be better to be in the corner of a house top, like on the corner of your roof, ready to jump, than to be entrapped in a house with a wife that's a drink, drippy faucet and whatever. And so husbands don't want that. And, they're, and so uh, we, we're, we're afraid of that. And we, we don't want that. And, but that's not what he says. He says just to love her, regardless of those things. And so sometimes we have wives that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And we have husbands that vindictively are saying, you know what, because my wife is that, he goes on to say, your wives do not be embittered against them. And so husbands start to get bit, getting bittered. They start getting mad. And so they start saying, well, okay, if I can't be ruler of my domain and I'm head of my house, then I'm just going to go get a hobby and I'm going to start playing golf or I'm going to make a wood shop or I'm going to go do something else and I'm going to find some other place to have dominion because I can't have it in my home. And so husbands go away and they start doing their thing and the wife's doing her thing and the husband's doing her thing and then they got kids and then finally the kids grow up and they're out of the house and you've got you know, a butler and a maid living in the same house and there's really no relationship there and things fall apart. Or 
We get so entrenched in our side and we're bitter. Wives bitter because the husband's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And husband's bitter because the wife is not being who she's supposed to be. Instead of just dying to ourselves and trusting Christ to be our advocate and to fight for us and to vindicate us, even though we're in unjust suffering. Second Peter chapter two, read that. And just saying, you know what? I'm going to trust Jesus to somehow rescue me in this, but I'm going to as best as I can submitting myself to the Lord. I'm going to, I'm going to grow in humbling myself and letting God work. And I'm just going to unconditionally love my spouse. I'm going to unconditionally, I'm going to do my roles. And so husbands do your roles and it's not your responsibility to make your wife do her roles and wives do your role and stop trying to make your husband do his role better. Okay. Let go of that. And you just do what God calls you to do and humble yourself and let Jesus change you. And I guarantee that change of transformation will happen in your home by God's grace if you're just worrying about your stuff and doing your things God has called you to do. So much more we could say about this. We'll have to say that for another time. But wives voluntarily submitting their husbands, husbands loving their wives, and then children are learning to live by faith. This is, this is a great thought. Uh, verse chapter uh, verse 20, chapter 3. Children, oh, be obedient to your parents in all things. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Be obedient to your parents in all things. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. Again, in the sovereign wisdom of God. This is some good stuff. Kids, there's a phrase in there that you might want to memorize. In all things. Not just when you agree. Not just when you like it. Not just when it makes sense to you, even though you have such superior intellect and wisdom and life experience and knowledge that so supersedes and transcends your dumb parents, even though you're so brilliant and infinite in your knowledge. I understand it's difficult, but in all things, be obedient to your parents whether you think they know better or not, because it's not that you're doing what you think is best. It's what you're learning a pattern of life, and that is to submit to the Father, the Heavenly Father, even when we don't understand. And hence the phrase, children are learning to live by faith. That's what it means to live by faith. It means to do what you're supposed to do, not because you see the answer or the reason, the purpose, but because you trust your Heavenly Father to His way is going to be best. And your parents might make a mistake every once in a while. They might misjudge something. They might not. And even if they do, and even if you, you, your way might have been better, doesn't matter. You, did you learn to submit yourself and walk by faith and trust the Father? Did you learn to walk by faith? Or did you walk by self-sufficient, self-righteous, self-centered pride? I can do what I want. I know what's best. I know what, yeah, that was a conversation that the first kids had with their first father in the garden, and it didn't really work out great. Okay, and so let's not pattern our lives that way. And then the last point here, which brings us to the whole, all this back around, fathers. Jesus is supreme in our families when fathers are shepherding with gospel hope. Shepherding with gospel hope. What does that mean? Verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. What does that mean? This is huge for all of us. Uh, The Christian life 
is not about living up to a list of rules. That's not the point of the Christian life. Can I do enough? Can I do what's right? Can I, can I earn my salvation? Can I earn? Can I be good enough so that God will love me? Because if I'm not good enough, then I'm going to pretend that I am so that, my God, that God will love me. And if I'm, if I'm not, then I'm going to try to perform to earn God's love and whatever. That's not the point of Christianity. And that's not the point of the gospel. And so family shepherds need to learn and moms, we need to learn as we're parenting our kids, are we leading them to the hope of the gospel? Or are we leading them to conform through behavior modification and beating them when they don't obey, and, which I'm, I'm all about spanking. I'm not saying not to do that. Or putting them in timeout or doing all things. But the goal is to help them see that there's consequences for bad decisions, but to redeem that with the gospel. You lied again. Why do you lie? Why are you always lying about it? Don't lie. The devil lies. He's the deceiver. Don't lie. I have trouble telling the truth sometimes too. But so we need Jesus to help us tell the truth. Not if you were a better kid, you would not lie. If you were a good Christian kid, you would not lie. No, do not tell your kids that. Tell them, man, we are all liars. But Jesus is the truth. We need his help. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so we need to repent of our lying and we need to trust the father to help us tell the truth because Jesus told the truth. We need Jesus' help. We're leading them to the gospel. And so the rhythm of your family is that, hey, God made everything perfect. We have fallen and rebelled against God, but Jesus rescues us and he's going to restore and he's going to help us live a life that we can't live that way. And so that should be the rhythm of your conversations with your kids. Every time you're dealing with the effects of the fall in your kids' lives or in your life, you are acknowledging where you violated it as a parent or they violated it as a child and we have been disobedient to the Father and we look to Jesus to rescue us and forgive us so that he can sustain us and help us live differently. And that's the rhythm of the gospel and that's how family shepherding works. And that's what God has called us to do. And so if Christ is supreme in our lives, then certainly wives are voluntarily submitting their husbands. Husbands are loving their wives as servant leaders. Children are living, learning to live by faith. And fathers are family shepherding. They're shepherding their children with the gospel hope, not with beating them into being perfect little citizens, but they're driving them to the Savior. And that's the goal. I'm going to pray for you a second. We're going to end and we're going to sing a song that has meant a lot to me because as a father, I just want you to be honest, I feel like I'm a pathetic dad all the time. I mean, I am not a good dad. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. I thought you were a good dad. That's why you're telling this stuff. No, I'm not. I need the father, okay? The fall is evident in my life and I need rescue all the time. And so I love the fact that all of us, regardless of your hurts, regardless of your pains, regardless of the examples of earthly dads or how good a job you're doing dads, being a dad, we have a heavenly father that we can look to and he is good, man. And he does it right. And he is perfect. And so all of us, I can stand with my children before the Heavenly Father and know in the fact that I fall short, I know He doesn't. And to the degree that I could help leverage their vision and their sight to not look at me as their Savior, but to look at Him, then our family's on the right track. And we're going to exemplify Christ and lift up the name of Jesus and exalt the branding of Christ, the great Savior, to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, I pray that you would help us apply these truths. God, that you would drive us to repentance and faith. God, that we would all acknowledge that none of us are perfect dads. None of us are perfect moms. None of us are perfect kids. None of us have perfect marriages. None of us have done anything in and of ourselves that would earn any kind of righteousness apart from you. 
Father, I pray for healing in this room. I pray for release in this room. I pray for hope of the gospel in this room. And to the degree that we have been confronted with our failures this morning, I pray that we, they would drive us to Jesus, who is our Savior and our hope and the one who restores and brings life where there's death. With the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray and we sing. Amen.